originally released this conversation with Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes when her and I recorded in September of 2020. But with all the backlash she's receiving this past week for her recently published Prayer of a Weary Black Woman, I wanted to re-release this episode for folks that might have missed it the first time. Dr. Shaniqua is a truly beautiful human with a heart for justice and racial healing. When I first read her book, I Bring the Voices of My People, I was blown away by her wisdom, courage, and insight. The book challenged and changed me like no other I read in 2020. If you haven't read that book, I highly encourage you to get it. Among other things, Dr. Shaniqua is a gifted theologian and minister, and the fact that she's getting so much grief and hate for her prayer is seriously troubling to me. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to go buy the book, A Rhythm of Prayer, also, for not only the privilege to read her prayer, but all the other brave voices who shared for the book. Is Dr. Shaniqua's prayer uncomfortable for white readers? Perhaps, but not remotely as uncomfortable as it is to be a black woman living in the whiteness and oppression of this country. We say we want to listen and learn from black women, but this recent reaction has made me wonder if we truly do. I've been reminded that our faith seems to be so fragile and our desire to uphold whiteness so strong that we cannot even allow a black woman to share an honest prayer without trying to silence her. In her prayer and this conversation, Dr. Shaniqua invites us in to her intimate sacred space. Perhaps we need to learn to sit with her and other black women in the space of being uncomfortable and open our eyes to the true gift of their voices. Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes is a voice we need to listen to. She is a clinical psychologist, public theologian, and minister whose work focuses on healing the legacies of racial and gender oppression. She earned her MS and PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Miami and her Master's of Divinity from Duke University. She is currently an associate professor at Mercer University. She's also the author of two books, Too Heavy a Yoke, Black Women and the Burden of Strength, and her most recent, I Bring the Voices of My People, A Womanist Vision for Racial Reconciliation, which recognizes the complexity of racism and centers the conversation on those it victimizes most, women of color. In my conversation today, Dr. Shaniqua shares her story of growing up as a black girl in the South with an early awareness of racism. She shares about her faith journey and her passion to fight for justice at a young age. Much of our conversation is focused on the crucial need to bring the voices of black women forward. As Shaniqua says, if we truly hope to work towards racial reconciliation, the perspectives of women of color must be moved from margin to center. Shaniqua, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, we had a little pre-talk and I just, I want to thank you again for being here. It doesn't go unnoticed just what a mentally, physically, spiritually draining year this is, especially for you as a black woman. So I just really want to acknowledge how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk and share your story today. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I um, first became aware of you last year at Evolving Faith. I was there in Denver with my daughter and heard you speak, took my 17-year-old there, and that was life-changing for us, just the whole conference and hearing you speak and read your book at that time, um, or shortly after. It was a little bit after that that I read the book, Um, but I just was blown away by you and your message, and 
you had you've been on my list for some time for the podcast and i think i just finally got brave enough to reach out a couple months ago so <laughs> thank you for the yes i'm so yeah. honored well will you just give us a brief introduction of not your credentials because you you are you have an amazing list of credentials which my audience already knows about but can you just tell us your day-to-day -day, who you are yeah i am um Oh, man. I'm a woman trying to survive right now. <laughs> yes, me too. Same. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, trying to survive. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher and a mom and a daughter and a niece. Um, I live in Atlanta, which is where I was born and raised. Um, so I left for a while after college, um, stayed away for uh, um, almost 20 years and then came back. Um, and so... Here, I'm especially surrounded by family. So this has been an interesting time because I've had to learn to manage my career and my extended family, which is yeah. large and loving um, and sometimes dramatic. Uh, I've had to learn how to manage that at the same time. And, and, and I didn't learn how to do that as I was getting formed in my career. Um, so that's been a, a really good, a really good thing. But yeah, that's, that's the heart of who I am. I'm a Atlanta native, Grady baby, as we call it, um, uh, born at Grady Hospital. Um, and this has been, this has been my home. And it's a place I'm learning to love again as it's changed a lot. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I can relate because we moved back this summer to Kansas City where I was born and raised, have not lived here, I don't know, 15 years. And it is a different, it's different to figure out a new space that you grew up in. And then, like you said, managing your family that now you're all near and you're a, maybe a different person than you were when you left. So, um, yeah, I've had a similar, similar just summer. So getting used to that. And how old's your little boy? You know, I know he one is son. 12. So 12. Okay. Is, we are right in the middle of middle school. Same. I have my daughter's 11. Okay. So she is in sixth grade. So is your little boy in seventh? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then the whole, we don't have to get into that. This whole year, school year is so interesting. <laughs> okay. That's another podcast, another story. So let's go ahead. If you don't mind, um, there's so much I have on my list to talk about with you today because you, I mean, you are just one of, I really feel like you're one of the most gifted writers, theologians that I have read and listened to. I've been listening to some of your sermons this last couple of days, even this morning. I listened to one, oh my goodness, Shaniqua, um, it was a sanctionary covenant church. It was called oh, yeah. that. I'm going to link that sermon because you brought it. Oh, it was so, I mean, it was so powerful. And I mean, it just, again, showed me like you are such a gifted and prophetic lady. So I want to start out though with your childhood because I really feel like our origin stories really shape us and shape our passion. So just take us back, I guess, as far as you want to go. I mean, I've had some people want to talk about their grandparents and where they're in their roots, where they came from, or if you just want to talk about your childhood, just take us back kind of your origin story. Yeah, I usually start my story actually with my grandparents, specifically my grandfathers, okay. because both of, of my grandfathers um, were born on sharecropping farms, one in South Carolina, one in Mississippi. Both of them managed to come to Atlanta sort of by way of escape. Mm -hmm. So my, my mother's father, shortly after he got married, moved his family 
out of Mississippi, um, never wanted to, to live there again, never wanted to be a sharecropper again. So coming to Atlanta, the, the city, you know, it was this big Southern city, the only one at the time where you could get a job, not as somebody's gardener or, or laborer, right? Um, so he came here for that. My um, dad's dad actually literally escaped the sharecropping farm um, with his father when he was seven years old. They ran wow. away. Um, they ran away, moved first to, to North Florida, and then um, eventually he came here. My grandfather came here with his own family. And so that story shapes my family's whole experience. On top of that, both of my parents, they ended up meeting because their families moved about a mile away from each other. They both ended up being in the second year of integration at their high school. They were the oldest kids, so they were the second year of integration, and so they went through that whole wave. And so their high school years were really um, defined by integrating a neighborhood first um, and then integrating a school and the racial turmoil that, that, that they experienced as a result of that. So my story my family story is very much a story of talking about racism i i grew up hearing about racism as far as i can remember i thought it was normal for everybody's family to talk about racism to talk about what is going on why it's going on what needs to change i thought it was normal for people to have family members who were activists um, and so and, and then my church also reinforced that because i grew up at a historic African-American church that was really steeped in the racial justice tradition. So we talked about um, justice issues from the congregation as it related to race, but not as it related to gender. Um, so part of what my church did really well was for me as somebody who knew my life had to matter for my people. Right, they, that that was what it did really well. And it taught me that being a Christian was about helping to alleviate the needs of the poor and the marginalized and the underserved. Um, so I started my, my career in college knowing I wanted to do something to help my people. Um, but um, in terms of ministry, that wasn't even a possibility. Women in ministry wasn't happening. It just wasn't an idea on my radar. Um, so I grew up in those kind of like that, that sort of tension and yeah. that very complicated space. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, going back a little bit when you said like about race, just always being part of who you are. And that's a, a quote I saw in your book. It said, race was always part of my identity. And then you said for Southern Black, which I thought this was so powerful, both of us are moms, so we can envision our little our third graders. For Southern Black third graders, knowledge about the Klan was commonplace. Racial knowledge was commonplace. It had to be if we were going to survive. And that is just so, such a powerful statement because we were talking, I mean, when you were about the same age, this was your childhood and just so that was part of it. And it, I think that is so powerful and for people that think, oh, slavery was so long ago. Like, no, this is right now. This was your childhood, your upbringing. So fast forwarding, you said that, another quote, you said, my own encounters with racism began in middle school. Do you remember like a specific moment or was it just a general feeling of, yeah, I, I, I feel it and I feel the hatred? It was, it was general and specific. The, the general was middle school was when I moved out of the safety of um, predominantly black schools. 
Gotcha. All of my elementary schools have been predominantly black, um, where my teachers were often white, but there were often enough black teachers and often um, the principals, assistant principals were, were black. In middle school, I moved into predominantly white spaces. Um, and so that was very different from the beginning and it often involved a fight just to get in the right classes. So it was fighting from the beginning of trying to get me registered. But I also remember my first instance of activism, so to speak, <laughs> was in eighth grade, I think seventh or eighth grade, right? It involved um, an incident at school where a group of black students, we decided we were upset and we were gonna march ourselves down to the principal's office. Uh, <laughs> and, and so that was the first time where I realized kind of the power of working as a, a collective voice. Um, and of course, I had grown up with activists. Um, yeah. And so that to me felt natural with, with this idea of group solidarity um, and organizing in our local space. Gotcha. Okay. Because then you do go on to say in the book that by the time you reached your senior year, the fire for racial justice had been lit in you. Yes. So that... Um, and again, that shows how your story just prepared you for what God had planned, this fight for racial justice so that he was going to use your life for. So your first call was not, like you just said, not a call to ministry. You went into psychology, right? Right. right. Okay. Okay. And you did that for years. Tell us a little bit about then your feeling called into ministry because you're still just because you were in psychology still with that call for um, racial healing, racial justice. But then what made you want to get into ministry, especially as a woman, thinking that I can't be a minister when I'm a woman. Right. Um, so I started, my focus on um, in psychology was looking at racial disparities and behavioral health, especially with adolescents. Um, and I it eventually started really focusing on the moms and the needs of moms started seeing a lot of pain. And at the same time, I was going through my own struggle um, regarding work that was very much tied to being the only African-American in, 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 my, in my context, but also I was a professor that had um, a black male student who was going through a pretty serious um, situation of racism within our program. And so for me, one, feeling the need to try to protect him, but also being very unprotected, right? Um, and so I started dealing with a lot of stress-related health problems and um, at some point realized my life had to change. And that part of that was that I was always um, giving too much of myself. And that's kind of the, 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 the story of my, my first book, Too Heavy a Yoke. I was giving too much of myself. And so I, I began to say, I've really got to change how I do this, um, change how I live and really start focusing on caring for myself. When I did that, um, I started meditating at that time. And it was after a meditation session that I actually heard the call to ministry. I, I was wow. really thinking, wow, um, I was thinking about all the changes I had made, how much my life had changed, how much my health was improving. And I thought, wow, if this works for me, it can work for other women. Um, and, and I clearly heard what God's voice saying, yes, it can. And I was like, wait, like, you know, like who's, I'm looking by, over my shoulder, like what, right. where'd that come from? And I'm a psychologist, so I have to test myself. It's like, did that come from outside my head or inside my head? Do I need to go see somebody? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I decided um, to start working with the women's group at my church and initially said it was going to be six weeks. I designed this six week um, um, 
program for women who were doing too much. And I said, God, I'm doing this and then leave me alone because I have my career planned out. I've, I've just mapped out my 10 year plan. I know what I'm doing for the next yeah. 10 years. And no more voices, God, I've got to figure no more it voices. out. Leave me <laughs> alone. I'm going to do this and this only. Right. Um, and, and, and at the same time, I've been bombarded really with women who had a similar story as mine, um, African-American women in the church, um, began working with women. And one night we were doing a session on prayer. And I went into our that group thinking this is going to be our shortest meeting because obviously all these good Christian women know anything and everything I could tell them about prayer, right? This is going to be the this is going to be the easy one. It was our longest meeting. Wow. Right? And in the middle of that, that voice came back, right? This is what you're supposed to be doing with your life. Wow. Right. Um, and so, yeah, from there, it was kind of all, I don't know if I want to say downhill or uphill for me. <laughs> it was <killing. laughs> That's what I was going to say. Ups and downs. Yeah, because you have a clinic, you have a PhD in clinical psychology. You were spent lots of years on that, uh, on that doctor degree. So to go to transition to ministry, I mean, you can see how they can totally interrelate, but that it was a shift. And another, you you ended up going to Duke Divinity School. Um, and I want to just touch before we get into that um, on the book that you mentioned, um, Too Heavy a Yoke. I just highly recommend that book. And that is, I mean, like I said, when we before we recorded, we could go both ways with this, the rest of this podcast, talking about both of those books, because that is a huge part of your story and other Black women and women in general, but specifically black women, that they just feel that burden of strength on them, that stereotype that you, you felt and you had to carry. And like you said, your health suffered. Um, and you, you have just, that book is such a good insight and a good guide for black women. Um, that I just highly recommend. I mean, I read it too, and I could relate just as a, as a mom and a woman with some of the, and I'm white, so I can just relate a little bit, but it's, um, anyway, I just will link that up because it's a great book too. Um, and I know in there too, you, you've had breast cancer twice. Yes. Was that in the same period or where is where does that fall into your story? Yeah. So that came actually between actually after both books. Oh I mean, God, so it was like sorry. after the first book came out a month later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. The second book, I finished it, sent it off to the publisher, and then like a month later, I was diagnosed with a recurrence. Oh, um, God bless. I'm so sorry. And so yeah, that's been over the, the, the past few years that I've, I've dealt with that. Uh, I would love to hear, and again, this could be a whole podcast too, but as I mentioned to you, I also had a cancer diagnosis earlier this year. Um, it changes you. My aunt had a, can a breast cancer diagnosis last month, um, and I see how it's just changed her because it knocks you off your feet. And even when they remove it and you think you're okay, you're just, it's, it's changes you. So I'd love to hear just kind of a little bit how, how those diagnoses maybe change, how they changed you. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, especially as it relates to the book, it, it definitely changes the way I engage the world. Mm -hmm. um, the first diagnosis, um, I think I had my, my first, well, my mastectomy, that was the, the weekend, I think the video, I think that was the week of Mike Brown was killed. And I remember being in the hospital and, and, and feeling like I needed to do something. Uh, I, I remember like waking up in the hospital and being like, what happened? Right? What has happened since I've been out? Yeah. Because Ferguson had started while I was, I while I was going into surgery and I had been plugged in. And so that 
forced me to find my voice in some different ways. I had lots of clergy friends who were going to Ferguson. I couldn't go to Ferguson, right? I had to focus on my health, but it also made me begin to really rethink how I had been in doing the work of of justice. Um, And so that made me a lot more outspoken on issues. I had a lot of friends say, um, you found your voice. And I said, no, you may may have just not been listening before. (laughs) But but I began to be more outspoken on on issues of of race um, more publicly. And I think in ways that were less, um, less friendly. Right. Yeah. Like being but because I began to see it more as a, as a demand. It was something it was an urgent need. Um, yeah. So whereas before I might have tried to take people by the hand and say, come along with me. Right. Like, let me let me show you this. And then it became, you know what? I don't have time for that. Right. Right. <laughs> I don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. This is what we need to do to change. Yeah. And so I became much more confrontational about that, um, because one thing that you learn as a cancer um, patient is you learn how to advocate for yourself. Like at some point you ultimately have to advocate for yourself. And so I became a much better advocate for myself and that helped me to become a much better advocate in general. That's such a good point. I I didn't think of the correlation, but you're right. I mean, there is a, you kind of have to throw your niceness out the window because it's, you're focusing on surviving and that does ripple over into this, this world too. Um, yeah, that's such a good point. So the second time that you dealt with it, did you notice another shift? I'm just, this is so intriguing to me, just yes. feeling so, my own life, the changes. Yes. I mean, the, the first time I knew I was coming back different, I even wrote a blog saying I am not the same. Like yeah. kind of world, watch out. <laughs> people I work with, people I know, watch out. Yeah. Um, the second time, I came back even further different, right? I think the first time I was really more making some changes for myself. The second time, I think I really began to demand more of the world around me, right? And and really saying, if you're gonna be in relationship with me, this is what I need you to do. Um, And so really became very outspoken about that, very demanding and unapologetic about that. And again, saying, wait a minute, no, I really have to learn how to advocate for myself as well as I've advocated for and cared for other people. And also I have to make sure that my life matters. So getting back to that, that idea of, I don't actually know how much, how, you know, how long um, I have, you know, that we always say, we know neither the time, the day nor the hour. Right. Um, But that's actually true. Um, And so wanting to make sure. And we know that, but I think a cancer diagnosis slaps you in the face with that. Like yes. nothing else, because I've always known that. But this year, I'm like, good golly, this, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And you want your life to count. And it's not like you have 20 years that you think you might, 20, 30 years. I mean, right. yeah. So I yeah. I hear you on that one. Yeah. So that and, and, and you know, in the midst of that, we have this election. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. after that, I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm not the same anymore. <laughs> Everything I've done in the past, that's kind of going out the window. Yeah, um, that was the nice version. Here's the real me. <laughs> and I think, honestly, people in my life are still adjusting to that, right? They're still adjusting to this, wait, who are you who just comes straight out and says what she thinks? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But that is who makes, I mean, that is why you're a difference maker right now. And that is why your voice is being heard and you're the voice that we need. And that's what, I think that's a good kind of jumping off point to talk in this last half hour about um, going back to your Duke Divinity. And I, what you share in your book is your experiences there, but you noticed something was missing in that talk about the church and racial reconciliation. Um, and that was kind of what led you to write the book, I Bring the Voices of My People. So do you want to talk about that? Like what what you noticed was missing and yeah. the passion behind the book? Well, I was at Duke at a really um, just opportune time. There were some incredible people there, both in terms of faculty, uh, staff, and students, actually. Um, so um, Willie Jennings and J. Cameron Carter were there, and they were both working on their projects about race. So this was before Willie Jennings um, wrote his book, but I was in his class and he was laying out his book. Um, Jay and I used to often park at the same parking lot and we would walk down the long chapel drive and he'd be talking about his ideas. And, um, and then on top of that, Chris Rice and Emmanuel Katangale were starting up the Center for Reconciliation. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove was there. And so there was a lot of place to talk about race and racism, what race meant, what racial identity was about. And for the first time I was hearing the church was supposed to have a stake in that. That was one of the things um, that was really striking to me. As a psychologist, I was focusing on healing racial disparities and trying to figure out, yeah, how, how do we fix these racial disparities? But in seminary, I learned that theology had something to say about why race? Why do we stratify the world about, about uh, race? What is the church's role in this? To, to begin to see race itself um, and racism as, as, as the bigger issue. And so wanting to say, oh, I don't just want to fix the symptoms of racism. I want to fix racism. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I, want to, I want to change that. I don't want to just heal its wounds after they've already been right. inflicted. I want to help change that. I want to end that. But I began to notice doing all this reading and talking, and I constantly have this yes, but voice. Um, and I remember once Chris Rice saw me, he was like, you're really struggling, aren't you? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I'm struggling. <laughs> and I was always pushing back and I couldn't figure out what it was, but eventually I realized what was missing were the voices of women, specifically the voices of black women and other women of color, but especially black women that, almost all the writing was um, by men. All of the, the classes that I took, um, many of them, um, particularly if they focus on reconciliation and not racism, they were by men. They were by largely evangelical black and white men. And I began to realize that there was a lot that the men don't understand about race, right? And likewise, I was going to conferences and they have these talks on racism where they have a black dude and a white dude, right? Like they were always men. Um, occasionally they might have a white woman on the panel, right? To, to talk about racism. And I realized they don't understand that there's a particular um, knowledge and wisdom that black women and other women of color bring to the table when it comes to talking about race, that our experiences are not identical to the, the experiences of our male counterparts. And they're not the identical to the experience of, of white women. We have a unique experience. And that experience helps us understand how racism works. And if the world isn't listening to our experience, then it can't understand what racism is, not to the full extent. 
And that's why, I mean, your book is, I've, I've read several books this last year on racism, reconciliation, but your book is so unique and powerful because you do bring, like it's, you bring the voices of black women in and the importance and why we have to listen to them. I'm going to read one of your quotes. It says, in any society, the most marginalized people best understand the rules of the system because they need to know the politics and dynamics to avoid being crushed by them. Women of color are often the marginalized among the marginalized. Our very survival depends on knowing it. And it's like how it's, it seems so crystal clear when you read your book, like, of course, this is who we need to be listening to and learning from. Um, so can you define just a few terms for us and people, I mean, we can't even begin to scratch the surface of your book. People need to read it. But I think one of the biggest concepts, um, I want to talk just a little bit about the womanist theology for one. But before we do that, we, we see that word reconciliation everywhere thrown around. Can you just give us a, a definition of it, what it really truly means when we're talking racial reconciliation? Yeah. So And what it doesn't mean. Yes. Right. Uh, so let me start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean what the church often thinks it means, yeah. which is um, a feel-good moment in establishing relationships between Black people and white people or establishing multiracial congregations. That's yes. not reconciliation. It's not just putting people together. Right? Re reconciliation is an outgrowth of the work of, um, well, God's mission, right? When we think about it from a Christian perspective, it's an outgrowth of God's mission of establishing a world that is characterized by shalom, a world that is characterized by justice for all people, um, by liberation for all people, and by healing for all people. And so when we talk about it in the context of race, we're talking about ending racism healing the wounds of racism and establishing a racially just society, right? All of that is part of what reconciliation is. And until we do that, um, we can't say that we, we achieved reconciliation. So reconciliation is not about individuals, not when we're talking about racial reconciliation. There's interpersonal forgiveness and reconciliation. Right. That's a right. different thing. But racial reconciliation is about trying to heal, undo, stop the wounds of racism of the past and preventing those from carrying us forward. And the church plays a central role in this, but they've been doing it mostly wrong. Um, I don't, I love that quote. I can't believe I don't have it written down, but you talk about in your book, like the church looks at it like this play date, like between, I love that. I was like, yes, like black and white play date, white people leave feeling good. The black people are like, what the heck just happened? Like, yeah, and that's how we have looked at it, if, if the church is even trying. Um, and so can you talk just a little bit about why, why the church is crucial in this? And maybe just a little bit, I mean, like I hit on, but why it's been so wrong in their approach. So the, the church has often looked at racism as a problem of identity and a problem of separation, right? It's, it's about feeling. It's about how people think of themselves as raced people um, and how people feel about people of other races. And so they focus then on um, either, sometimes you'll hear people talk about, we need to eliminate the idea of race and we need to be colorblind, right? That's one big one um, because, you know, God didn't create black and white, right? That's what we talk about. Or we talk about how it's all about eliminating hostility between the races. 
So that that is about feelings, right? But racism isn't about that. Racism is a system that structures society um, in order to promote and maintain white supremacy. You know, particularly in the U.S. context, it's about um, maintaining this idea that white people are, um, and by white people, I mean everything associated with whiteness, right? That whiteness, um, white bodies, white culture, white values, white beliefs, white norms, that all of those are somehow superior to those of all other racial ethnic groups, and that then white people ought to be in charge, right? Um, and that they ought to set the standard for everything. Uh, the church has aided and abetted that from the very beginning, um, literally from the time when the Catholic Church um, set out the doctrine of discovery that basically said that European explorers were free to take the possessions um, and to exterminate any non-white people um, especially if they did not um, honor the church, right? But they, if they made it all about race. They said, if you encounter non-white peoples in the world, um, you can take their land. You can, you can take them, right? <laughs> you can take them. Um, and so the church set that up from the beginning. The church has always shifted theology and formed the theology to, to form racism. Um, influence laws in, in, in Virginia in the 1600s. Um, there was a law that said baptism did not change your status from slave to free because they wanted to make sure that people that enslaved Africans didn't get baptized and then were eligible to be free. Um, because before that, it had been considered a sin for Christians to enslave one another. So the Virginia legislature stepped in and said, we need a law to fix that, right? And we talk about separation of church and state, but they didn't care about it then, right? <laughs> no, no, didn't, didn't, didn't fit their needs then, so, you know. Hmm. Right, so from the beginning, um, the church has shaped its theology to support the idea of racism, um, to talk about, you know, you talk about the curse of Ham, the, you know, the church is... Um, for, like flagrantly distorted scripture to justify yeah. slavery and race-based oppression. So the church is absolutely on the hook. And there's a big burden um, you make a great case for, and it's true. There's a bigger burden on white people to come to terms with all this yoke, the sins of the whiteness that we have, um, oh, what word am I? The problem, I think you use the problem of whiteness. Yeah. Um, and we have a big burden on us within the church to go through those layers and repent for that, those things. And not, again, not just move forward with making like the friendships and interracial congregations. That's not, that's not it. Right, right. I mean, you have to really think about what kind of culture is formed that um, white slave owners could go to church on a Sunday um, and on their way to church, they were walking past their slaves. And that afternoon, they might beat or rape an enslaved person, right? But they were, they were allowed to think of themselves as good people. Yeah. So the, the entire culture was shaped around that, was around this kind of divide between their personal ethics and their Christian identity. Um, white theology and, you know, and doctrine across all the denominations has been shaped by this idea that what we believe is more important than what we do, our personal relationship with Jesus, right? Because you can be a slave owner and have a personal relationship with Jesus as long as you claim you love Jesus. It doesn't matter how you treat the person who's right in front of you, right? Um, that becomes the foundation of white Christianity 
in the U.S. in particular, um, across the world really, but it is it is sharpened to a, a fine point in, in, in the U.S. And it just like hearing you talk and I'm thinking about how you also shared that you grew up in the church and what how solid that was for you and their, um, you know, their fight for justice in the black church that you grew up in. And it seems like such a dichotomy. So were you aware of all this or were you, how have you gotten your mind around like, no, this, this really was the, the church then and at the start of it and the roots of it. Um, and you still love God and love Jesus and love the Bible. Has that been a hard hard for you in this journey you know not if, I think sometimes it does get hard you know growing up we weren't we didn't really think about certain white Christians as real Christians honestly I remember when I went to seminary and I you know I grew up Baptist, you could sometimes um, apply that today right right <laughs> wow. exactly I went to seminary and there was this thing called Baptist house and they okay. had like, all the Baptists like they would have these events and like all the Baptists the black ones and the white ones and I was like, but we're not the same family. We don't, we don't belong in the same house. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. I like, want to quote you on that. Growing up, we didn't really think of white people as real Christian. <laughs> um, and particularly like, the, you know, it was like maybe if you were white and United Methodist, maybe yeah, you might yeah. be okay. Maybe if you were Presbyterian, we might think you're, but definitely not if you were Baptist, even yeah. though we were also Baptist. Right? That's so <laughs> funny. That's um, so funny. And so I think that was part of it. Um, it is hard, I think, even now to see how the church aids and abets racism, how the evangelical church, um, and not just them, but white ma um, Protestant mainline churches, um, increasingly we see uh, white Catholics um, aiding and abetting Trump and just outright distorting theology to justify okay. voting for one of the, 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 the vilest presidential um, well, candidate and now president that I have seen like in years, mm -hmm. right? And someone who openly, it's not just a matter of his behavior is different from his ideology. It's the things he says, right? Right, And the right. things that he does, that these are all the things that we are supposed to be against as Christians and to watch white Christians, the vast majority, you know, people have, have, have gotten on that number of 81% of white evangelicals. But if you look at the other numbers of white Catholics, those numbers are slightly better, but there's still a pretty high number of white Catholics. It's still a pretty high number of white Protestants, yeah. uh, mainline Protestants, right? The, the, the numbers are higher than they should be on in, in every sector of white Christianity. Yeah, they really are. And it's, like I told you before we started this conversation, the Trump presidency is what's totally shifted my paradigm and questioning my faith and other Christians and maybe take a hard look because it's not, it's not revealed the worst. I think it's revealed the truth. What's really under there of beliefs and going back to what you just said, the racism that's been embedded in the church from the very beginning. Um, and we'll, let's, we'll come back to that at the end. Cause I want to talk just a little bit about the presidency and what keeps you going through this. Um, but before we move, go to that, I want to just, I want to touch on the whole womanist theology because that could be a new term for people. Um, I'm not, I think it probably a year, year and a half ago, it was a new term for me. And I think it's so powerful. And that is what, for, again, the missing part that your book so clearly just defines and lays out. So can you go into that just a little bit, what womanist theology is and that vision and um, kind of that new lens to look at it? 
Yeah, so um, womanist um, first is a term that um, the writer Alice Walker um, developed in, um, in the 1980s. And she, she developed it as a way to talk about the distinction really between black feminism and white feminism. So the womanist movement emerges out of black women's dissatisfaction with feminism on the one hand, but also dissatisfaction with sort of um, the very patriarchal um, leaning often of the civil rights movements, right? And so it was again, this space where black women needed a space of their own, um, where they weren't second class citizens. So, so womanism is a particular way of engaging the world that comes out of the lived experiences of black women and affirms the lived experiences of black women as sacred. Womanist theologians in particular, um, we see it as if we center the experiences of black women, then we create um, a big enough tent that carries everybody, right? Because black women are not just individuals. We are mothers, we are sisters, we are, um, we are lovers, we are wives, right? Um, that, we that we carry other people with us. And so we are not just wanting our liberation, we're wanting everybody's liberation, right? right. Um, and so womanist theology starts with the perspective of, of, of Black women, but then it uses that as a space out of which to grow and says that we are concerned with the survival and liberation of all peoples, right? Male, female, the whole rainbow spectrum. But we're gonna start because we think there's something particular about black women's lives that tells us something about the nature of the world and about the nature of God and about the nature of what God wants for the world. Yeah, and do you do you feel like that's starting to happen, that black women's voices are becoming centered or do you just still feel like we have so far to go or both? I think maybe as we've seen improvement. Mm -hmm. I certainly think there is a greater awareness of the, the value of listening to black women over this past year. Um, the, 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 the killing of Breonna Taylor, the movement that has emerged there. And I think more people are aware of the disparity now. Yeah. They were aware even a few years ago with Sandra Bland, right? More people see, oh, there's a difference here. Even in this injustice, there's a difference between how the, the cases are, 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 are treated. Um, and so I think because of that, there's a little bit more um, uh, awareness of that. More people are learning the term intersectionality a little bit and so are getting that but we also see with, say, for example, the New York Times bestseller list, you know, as more books about racism, right? That was exciting to see so many books about racism yeah. topping the bestseller list. But then when you looked at, wait, whose books about racism? They were black men's and white women's that were at the top, right? Um, which are good perspectives. And, but that's not the full perspective if you limit it to, to that. So there were a lot, um, a lot of issues that get overlooked. So I think there is improvement. There is decided improvement. We have Kamala Harris as our VP, right? There's decided improvement um, in that, um, but there's still a whole, a, a lot more uh, way, to, way to go. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think too, if gosh, if if Kamala Harris can become vice president, I think that would be a huge stride. I mean, Michelle Obama is 
just incredible and her voice seems to be listened to and embraced. So like you, I do see advances, but gosh, we have so far to go. I mean, even it's so put in perspective talking a couple of weeks ago to Letty Shoemate, we talked about, um, you know, the 19th amendment and the fact that black women couldn't vote till 1965. I mean, what does that tell us? Like how far behind we are in embracing the voices of black women. Yeah, I mean, black, black women's bodies are still adjudicated, right? There's still places where our hair, right? That to wear, for our hair, for us to wear it the way it grows out of our head is, is not protected by law. Like there are corporations, a few years ago, it was the military that said black women could not wear certain hairstyles, right? Well, they don't say black women can't wear certain hairstyles. They banned certain hairstyles that right. turn out to be the way that our hair right. grew out of our head. Right. Um, and right. so we see that. We see that across the world. There was actually a Supreme Court's case, if I remember correctly, in Jamaica recently that upheld a decision saying that a corporation could refuse to hire um, someone based on her hair, on wearing natural hair. So I think, and when you look at those perspectives, even if we have these isolated cases, um, these individuals, so you have the Michelle Obama, the Kamala Harris, the Stacey Abrams, that even as much as those are improvements, they don't necessarily change the material lives of black women and girls across the world, right? They are, they are right. isolated cases. They are the ex exception. What we want is for that to be the rule. Right. right. That's no, what I, we're working for. Right. I appreciate you saying that because as a white person, it is very easy. And that's kind of what I've done. Like, well, look at these ladies that are amazing. But just the things I'm not aware of, like you just said, with the hair, like there's so many of these little ingrained um, systemic racism, like all of this that you are still encountering. And I think that, like you said, it's it's th those changes that need to happen across the board and it not be an exception, but the rule that black women are heard and can flourish and their voices are out there. I mean, what do you, I, I don't have this written down, but as a white woman, what would you like to see happen? Tell me truthfully as a white woman, I hate to ask you what I can do because black people are tired of hearing asking me and ask, ask that. But what would you like to see happen as some steps going forward with white women to let voices be heard more, to step down on things? Like, I guess tangibly, I'm looking for for some things. Yeah, I think first and foremost, white women really have to begin to interrogate their own role yeah. in the system because it's a unique role um, as as having racial privilege but gender oppression and the way in which white women have learned how to wield that role sometimes against black women. Mm -hmm. So I think white women have to do a whole lot of work um, on their own identities and uncovering that and trying to figure out the ways in which they have not been good friends to, to black women, the ways in which they have not been good advocates um, and allies for black women in their own lives, like starting with who, where are your relationships, who are the people in your lives, to what extent are you aware of the, the burdens of women of color? So the second part of that is learning more about the lives and the burdens of women of color. Um, and then I think getting involved in organize, organized efforts for social change, right? Supporting whether it's with your finances, it's with your time, organized efforts, not necessarily being willing to, to rest on being a good person, right? But getting out there and doing something. Yeah. Because the reality is in our system, white women actually have a lot more power than they like to think that they have. 
um, and that white women can help shape the perspectives of powerful white men. White women can shape um, the perspectives of the nation, right? Um, when they get involved in, in, in activism. Um, if you look at what happened in Mississippi during the 1960s, one of the pivotal turning points was when a white woman went down to Mississippi and ended up getting killed. Now I'm not saying white women need to get killed. <laughs> Yeah, what it you're was saying. the fact that yeah. she got involved, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, another turning point was when I think when white mothers saw what had happened to Emmett Till, right? There are turning points where white women yeah. have learned how to use their power. Um, but I think they have to learn how to do that in ways that benefit people of color, right? And don't just replicate some of the old norms. And so that requires a lot of self-examination. And that can be painful, right? Yeah. To, to really look at the way in which um, white women do benefit. The way in which white women have benefited more from the, um, the civil rights movement than black women and men have. Yeah, for sure. Right? There's a lot of, of that that needs to be examined. And so being able to come to grips with that, but then also just really putting your money and your time where your mouth is, right? Like just yeah. really saying, what are the organized efforts that we can do to, to change this? pick an issue, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it's um, voter suppression, right? And say, I want to, I want to, I want to help change this issue, right? Because I know that changing this issue will, will mean um, changing, at least giving us a, a step forward towards racial progress. Yeah. Thank you for that. that. I know that's exhausting to have to give that answer probably over and over, but I appreciate that. And I think that is such really good solid to do's that we seem to want but I think it's so crucial because that's what I don't want is people to hear this conversation or read your book and be like huh okay well I don't know what I'm just a woman I don't know a white woman I'll listen to black people I guess you know but no it's so much more and what you just laid out is such such good solid moving forward steps um okay so moving forward we have a few minutes left and we have to go back to kind of how you end your book, but also where we're at now, because you end your book talking about, I'm writing this chapter in the election of the wake of Donald Trump's presidency by a largely white Christian supporter base, and that you're tempted to abandon this work among Christians, which I can only imagine because I feel it too. And you are in it and you're a black woman in it. And I'm sure you just want to be like, I'm done with this, but you talk about what keeps you there. And right now we're heading into an election and we can't stop stop the fight like this is the, the time we don't stop but what keeps you going you talk about um the only thing that keeps you going on this journey is captivity and this was such a perspective i have never heard i've looked at the other side of the captivity so in our remaining time would you just talk about that like what you mean by that and that captivity and i just it's such it's a, it's a, it's for all, us believers as Christians. We are held captive, and this is this is why we keep going and fighting this fight. Yeah, I am for better or worse <laughs> held captive by the idea that this is what God wants for us, right? That um, a, a just world, um, that a racially just world, gender justice in all ways that this idea of learning how to become one people is what God wants for us. Yeah. And that it, it's really hard for me to read scripture in any other way, right? I, I can make excuses for why we're not there, 
But ultimately, the, the picture that I see, particularly in the New Testament, but I think also through the, the Old Testament, I read all of Scripture as God's attempt to, to create a people who will act like they've been made in the image of God. Right? That that's, that's the whole story. Yeah. From, from Genesis to Revelation, that's the whole story. That's what God is trying to do. Um, and, and part of that has to do with how we, how we treat the other. Right, how we see the other, how we learn how to break down those barriers and to become um, one, how we learn to actually let baptism become our defining identities, mm -hmm. right? And I am, you know, I am convinced that that is what God demands and that my own discipleship is bound up in how well I advocate for that and how well I work towards that. And so there are many of times, and yes, this current season is one where I feel like I want to give up on this vision, right? I, I, I don't want, you know, or just, I'm like, God, can I just talk to my own people? Can I just deal with black people and just leave white people alone? Because I have very little hope. <laughs> right? Can I just do that? Can I not um, talk to that white podcast lady, please, Lord? <laughs> you know, I'm like going back to how I started, which was he, like, let's just heal the, the wounds of racism. Like, can I just go there? Yeah, go yeah. That. Um, because that actually seems in some ways more doable. I can, right, right. I can work with this. That is, that is the thing that, that keeps me in this. And there is some part of me that just is defiantly hopeful. Good. Right. That continues to believe that we can be better and that um, even though there's so much evidence to the contrary, but um, there's a lot of me that that wants to believe that we can be better. I question it a lot lately. Yeah. Right. More and more these days, a lot of times in my prayer lately, I'm asking God, are we really the best you could have done? <laughs> Yeah. Is it is time that, for another flood, Lord? Like, like, come on. Are we like the beta version of the meeting? <laughs> right. I'm sure. I think there's a design flaw here. Uh, right. <laughs> so yes. I keep, but, and, and, but even that, you know, ultimately this idea that, well, if I believe in an all-knowing God, God knew we were going to screw this up. And God created us anyway. Yeah. Jesus knew we were going to screw it up and Jesus came anyway. That keeps me held captive to this and says, I can't give up because God yeah. didn't give up. Jesus didn't give up. I can't give up. Um, and more selfishly, I can't give up for my son. I can't give up for my nephews and nieces. I can't give up because I'm going to have family members in this world, hopefully for many generations past me. That's and I right. hope to make it a better place than, than it is now. That's right. I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. One last question for you. I hadn't, I didn't do this in last seasons, but I'm going to start just asking a couple same questions to my guests because this has been such a hard year and I, I'm, I've struggled with lots of things, trying to find joy, try to stay, trying to stay grounded. I just want to hear from you how you're finding or where you're finding joy right now and how you're staying grounded. Um, I am learning to really carve out space for, for, for myself. So I, I've shifted how I start my day. My day starts with a walk and with good time in my meditation 
area and stretching. I make myself do that even when I think I need to rush and start work, but I need to ground myself. And then joyous little things like um, I've started gardening. Yesterday, I had a dance-a-thon to Lizzo. Like, I was just like private dance like i'm at my private dance party uh for you (laughs) because you have to do that to keep up with this journey and that's what i'm learning too because it's you can feel like i don't have time for that stuff like there's so much to do but i'm seeing like you have to find those moments so i love that you had your own little girl dance party (laughs) that's awesome that's awesome so those are the things i do um and yeah, I think we all have to find out our ways to, to, to carve out and find room for joy and um, whether it's getting out in the sunshine. But yeah, we have to find ways to hold on to our joy and hold on to our sense of who we are right now. Well, I have loved talking to you. I appreciate your honesty and just um, you've given us a glimpse into your book. I bring the voices of my people. We will link that up. A Womanist Vision for Racial Reconciliation. Do you see how marked up my copy is? Oh my goodness. <laughs> And I've read through several times because of having, we rescheduled this interview. So I've like been rereading stuff and new stuff comes out every time. So I just, I'm thankful again for you being here, you sharing these truths, talking to me, taking the time for me and my audience. Tell us where you can be found if people want to connect with you on social media, if you're there, just all of those things and we'll link them up. Yeah. So my website is drshaniqua.com. Um, And you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Dr. Shaniqua. Okay, we will link all of that up. And are you going to be speaking at Evolving Faith this year? I will be at Evolving Faith this year again. So I'm looking forward to it, and I hope to see folks there. Okay. Virtually. Right, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. We'll be be watching online this year, but we will be listening and watching. So, all right, you have a great day, and thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.